right, well, uh, my name's Pastor Bob. I'm one of the, uh, the pastors here along with Pastor Dave, and uh, we are in the middle of a series, a sermon series called We Need a King. Uh, we are looking at the life of David in the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel, if you're just joining us today. And uh, last week, David finally got to the throne. David finally entered Jerusalem. The ark was there, and uh, he's, now on, he's now on the throne in Jerusalem. And today, we've come to one of the most important passages in the Bible, Second Samuel chapter 7. And I think what you'll find is that this chapter is a calm in the storm. Uh, there's no battles as uh, Pastor Dave uh, eloquently quipped last week, there, there's no decapitations this week. Uh, fair warning. And uh, after all David's running, he is finally able to rest and reflect. And so in today's message, what I really would like to show you is how to find true rest for your soul, and I want to show you what is stealing your rest. So when I think about rest, to get into that topic, I think about my bed. Maybe you think about this too. How many of you have a great bed? Uh, now, assuming you sleep eight hours a night, which, which, which may not be a fair assumption, um, one-third of your life is spent in your bed, and the quality of your mattress will determine if you wake up with joint pains or with deep rest. Has anybody slept on an air mattress recently? If you have, you know what I'm talking about. I don't care how much marketing they do, it's still an air mattress. <laughs> it does not give adequate uh, rest. By contrast, if, if you have a mattress that contours your body, hugs it just right, that makes all the difference. And I got to tell you, a great mattress, that is worth the money. Now, a few years ago, Amanda and I decided that our mattress just was not cutting it. And so uh, we, we, can't, we encountered a problem when we were thinking about getting a new mattress. We like different firmness levels, okay? Anybody out there run into this problem? I like it really firm. She likes it a bit softer. And, and so uh, I got into the market on finding a new mattress, and I realized it's kind of like trying to buy a new car, right? Nowadays, they got different models. Are you going to get a spring mattress, an inner coil, a foam mattress? They even have hybrid matches, mattresses. Who knew? Um, now, I finally succumbed to the advertising around something called Helix Sleep, um, and their marketing pitch as a mattress company is this, find the right mattress for how you sleep. They even offer a test, a quiz. Are you a side sleeper? Are you a back sleeper? Are you a stomach sleeper? And what they do is they pair you up with a recommended model, which to me sounds too good to be true. Um, also, it's one of those mattresses that comes to your house in a box and then like inflates, kind of like an air mattress, but not. Um, and I was skeptical at first, um, but they give you a 100-night sleep test plus the warranty, so we said, let's give it a shot. And I got to tell you, once I got it there and I set it up and I laid down, I was floating like a cloud in heaven. <laughs> oh, my goodness. My back aches were gone, my hips were in alignment, and the next day I woke up with my hands in the air praising Jesus. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Do you have a mattress that gives you that kind of rest? Right, because once you, get a, once you finally get a good night's sleep, you start to realize we need rest. And when you don't get it, everything's out of balance. In fact, the National Sleep Foundation recommends we get seven to nine hours of sleep per night, uh, to which I say, I don't remember the last time I got nine hours of sleep a night. Um, how many of us achieve this consistently? Very few. So few, in fact, the World Health Organization has labeled our collective lack of sleep a global, emerging global epidemic. Studies have shown that sleeping less than six hours per night hurt our immune systems, raise our risk for certain types of cancer, and lead to anxiety and depression. The moral of the story is that rest is important. 
But we live in a world that doesn't value rest. Do you sense that? We live in a world that doesn't value rest. And you say, Pastor Bob, I get it, right? But the deck is stacked against me. Uh, I'm always told I got to do more. I got to work harder. I got to be more efficient. I know I need rest, but man, that is a pipe dream. I get it. Listen, (laughs) I got three kids, six and under, okay? One's with special medical needs. I have lost literally nights of sleep going to the emergency room. Even when things are good, maybe you, maybe you can resonate with this. Even when things are good, I think the three of them hold counsel behind our back and just decide, hey, it's your night tonight. I'm going to tag you out. Your turn. Let's see, let's see what we can do. <laughs> They're like velociraptors strategically trying to plan an attack from different angles, seeing how much sleep we really need. And I plead with them, listen, we just bought a new bed. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Now, the tension is this. We're constantly battling enemies of rest in our lives. It's like a war. Now, what are they? What keeps you up at night? Well, first, there's stress, right? Don't you get a better night's sleep when you're on vacation and there's no deadlines to meet? When you're walking through a stressful situation, it's hard to close your eyes and sleep. So there's conflict at work. Uh, You're not sure how the bills are going to get paid. A major test is tomorrow, and school feels overwhelming. Stress. Right? Second, um, lack, of, lack of sleep can, can stem, or rest, can stem from certain life situations. So I, I mentioned you might have little kids. Uh, somebody's in a constant crisis. Uh, a major change is happening. You're doing a move, a new business endeavor. It's finals week. Some situations you can control, other situations you can't control. And then, of course, there's the general unknown. What's going to happen in our world? Uh, Who's going to win the next election? Will I keep my job? Will my dreams come true? Will I find that person I've been waiting my whole life for? The unknown can cause anxiety and stress leading to a lack of rest. And some of us know this really well. Who or what is stealing your rest? Now, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is all about a promise, I think, that leads to true rest. It's a chapter which unlocks the backdrop of the New Testament and the coming of Jesus. And Christmas is coming soon, so 2 Samuel 7 shows us why Christmas is important. It shows us the tension that people were living in at the end of the Old Testament. Will Messiah come? Will God keep his promises? Will he give us the rest he promised? Do you have rest in your life? 2 Samuel 7 shows us how to find true rest for our souls, and it shows us what is stealing our rest. How? It uncovers three places that we run to for rest. First, we can go in the tent. Second, we can go in the house. Or finally, we can come at the throne. In the house, or in the tent, in the house, at the throne. Let's pray before we look at each one today. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for uh, the gospel, Lord. I thank you for your grace and your love and, and your promises, Lord. And so I pray as we look at 2 Samuel 7 today, Lord, that you would uncover in our hearts the things that are keeping us from finding our rest in you, from falling at your feet and trusting you with our lives. Holy Spirit, would you, would you move? Would you, would you open our eyes today? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the first place we run for rest is in the tent. Now, let me give you a quick, a quick um, reminder about the context of 2 Samuel 7. The kingdom of Israel has just gone through an upheaval. King Saul and his whole dynasty are dead. 
David, God's chosen king, he's managed to unite this divided kingdom and bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. That was what we covered last week. And now he's going to reign. All Israel's enemies are wiped out. And then we read this in 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. It says this. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, pause, what do we learn from this verse? First, David's living in a house, a palace, a physical structure, which we'll describe in the next verse. Second, and more important, he has rest from his enemies. And that might seem like a small detail, but it's really significant, right? Um, This is the first time in this narrative since 1 Samuel 16 that David is not engaged in battle. He is not being chased by an adversary. He's not having to watch his back. Let's review what's happened to David. 1 Samuel 17, David fights a giant. 1 Samuel 18 to 20, his father-in-law is hurling spears at him. He's sending assassins to his house. 1 Samuel 24 and 26, Saul, his father-in-law, he's chasing him with thousands of people in his army into the wilderness. 1 Samuel 27 to 31, David is fighting as a mercenary with his enemy, the Philistines. 2 Samuel 1 to 5, he's fighting political enemies for the throne. And then 2 Samuel 7, he is finally able to rest. Now think for a moment what that must be like. Because right now in your life, Um, I I don't know everybody in the room, but right now in your life, it might feel like a war zone, right? It it seems like every day is a battle at work, at home, that there's miscommunication, uh, there's finances, your your job is asking you to do something you don't want to do, your parents won't listen to you, Uh, kids are slamming the door in frustration, it might seem like everybody's out to get you. What would it feel like to have relief from all of that? What would it feel like to have your body just relax? Now, this is what David is experiencing right here, rest. And the question is, what is he going to do with that rest? Because that's something we rarely think about. When life is stressful, we're always talking about, I got to manage my stress, right? But what are we going to do when we actually get to rest? This is the first time in David's adult life where he's been able to lay down the sword. What is he going to do? Look at verse 2. It says, the king said to Nathan, so the king David says to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So David is sitting in his nice, beautiful palace, and he looks over at the tabernacle, which is a tent, and he says, why doesn't God have a house like me? Now, the tabernacle, and we did a whole series on the book of Exodus last year, which we described the tabernacle in detail. You can go there and and learn more about that. Uh, But essentially, the tabernacle is a big, beautiful tent, right? But it's still a tent. And after all these years, I got to tell you, no matter how beautiful your tent is, it's probably going to get musty unless you're cleaning it regularly. Now, let me give you a a little bit of background here because you might be saying, well, why doesn't David just go build him a house? Well, first, David does live in a beautiful house, a palace, right? And and it's, it's got cedar paneling, which is wood that's beautiful and expensive and it smells really, it's got a good aroma. Um, So David says, naturally, well, why doesn't God have a temple like this? And and you're probably saying to yourself, well, why is that a problem? Secondly, you have to understand that this was a common practice in the ancient Near East, in his culture. If you'll remember, military success was often tied to the power of your God. And after a king won a great military victory or they secured more land, uh, 
you know, what they would do is they would reward their God for giving them success. In other words, the king would build God a place of rest um, for what he had done for the king. And at the end of the day, what this amounted to was a quid pro quo relationship where the king would honor God only if God gave him what he wanted. Now, it's hard to know if this was David's motivation here, but culturally speaking, it had to have been on his mind. And so what David does is he calls up Nathan the prophet and gets his thoughts on the matter. Verse 3, Nathan said to the king, go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, notice... This is the first time since Samuel died that we see the king talking to the prophet of God about God's will. And Nathan will play a key role as we go forward in in the second Samuel narrative. But his response right here to David is essentially, go for it, God's with you. We'll get to God's response in just a moment. But before we get there, I want to pause for a second and consider what these opening verses may be teaching us. And I think it's this. When serving God, we have to beware misplaced motivations. When serving God, we have to beware misplaced motivations. And this requires us to dig a little deeper here, because what I mean is that David's action may, see, may have seemed good, but the motivation behind that action may have been self-serving. He wanted to look good. He wanted to keep God in his debt. David could say, God, look at what I did for you. Therefore, since I built you a house, you are obligated to give me what I want. And that's not how God operates. Commentator Richard Phillips states it pretty clearly. He says this, earthly wisdom always desires for man to save God by human works. Earthly wisdom always desires for man to save God by human works. God, I built you a temple. I did you a favor. How are you going to repay me? The human heart is duplicitous, and we always have to examine the deeper motivations. And the reason we may not be finding rest in our lives is because we're trusting ourselves rather than God. If our motivations are misplaced, if we think it's all about us, we won't find true rest. It's going to be like sleeping in a flimsy tent night after night after night. Now, I know there's some campers out there right now saying, hey, you know what? There are some nice comfortable tents on the market. Go to REI, you can buy them. I get it. But would you trade your house for a tent, even as beautiful as those mountains look? Would you trade it for a tent as a permanent residence? Probably not. And that's what it's like when we find our rest in our own efforts rather than God's. And I think there's at least three roads that lead us down these misplaced motivation pathway. The first is fear. Because when we're afraid, it messes with our motivations. When we're afraid, we don't make good decisions. We make quick decisions that might not be the best decisions. We already have plenty of examples of when Saul was making decisions out of fear, claiming to honor God, but his actions were self-serving. Second, fame. When we gain some notoriety, and this doesn't mean you're like a super famous person, but maybe you have followers on your social media account, right? It's, It's very easy to start to believe our importance If you fancy yourself a social media influencer or whatever, be careful. Because when we're famous or we think we're famous, we don't seek God as much because we don't think we need him. And when we do seek him, we just simply ask him to help us keep our stuff. Third, fortune. When money gets involved, it affects our motivation. 
And if you have the ability to make a lot of money, that, that's great. But you know with, we- with more wealth comes more responsibility, and it requires character to manage it. Not everybody can. And we hold on to our fortune with a tight fist. That motivation can supersede our motivation to serve God. If our motivations to serve God are anchored in any of those three areas, our rest will be equivalent to sleeping in a tent on a hard ground night after night. And the truth is David experienced all of these motivations at some point in the story. So right here, he's asking himself, or we're asking ourselves, why did, he, why did David want to build a temple for God? Was it for God's glory or was it for David's glory? And David, like many of us, was probably concerned about his legacy, which gets to the second point, the second place we find rest, and that's in the house. A building is something tangible where we can say we built it. It can be a monument to our accomplishments. David um, and Nathan had this idea to build God a house, a temple, but in verses 4 to 11, it becomes clear that this is not what God had in mind. We read this in verse 4. It says this, But the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? Which seems like an odd question. Right? Why would God want to continue to live in an old, smelly, musty tent? Why wouldn't he want a temple built with beautiful cedar panels that looked and smelled great? Sometimes we make plans that we think are great plans, we think we know God's will, and God says, no, I want you to do something else. And I want to camp there for just a second because this situation is something we all face at some point in our lives. We have a desire to do something for God. Start a ministry. Uh, make a career move. Go to a certain college, make a sports team, whatever it is. You might have a desire. You're asking God, Lord, I want to do this. And God says, no. How do you respond when God says no? I was talking with somebody in between the services, and he said, you know what? That's I wrestled with that many times in my life. Like I thought I knew where I was going to go. I thought I had these plans, and and God just said, no, you're going to go this way. And I didn't like it. When God says no, I've seen people use that as justification to leave the faith. When God tells you no, I've seen people spiral into depression. When God says no, I've watched people defame his name. What will you do when God says no? Because the reality is this, God God has a reason for saying no, and it may be for our good. We just can't see it yet. So look at God's response in verse 6. It provides a clue into his character. He says this, I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, I did speak a word with, I did not speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Right? Do you hear that? God says essentially, listen, Nathan, David, you're attempting to give me a gift I haven't asked for. I've been living in a tent all these years, and not once did I ask anybody for this house of cedar that you're talking about. I mean, I mean, he could have asked for it, right? I mean, God is, if you read the Bible, God already has given instruction on how to build a boat, a really big boat. God's given instruction on how to make this tent that he's been living in. Why not a temple? He didn't ask for it right here. 
And here's the great truth behind God's response. God is an incarnational God. God is an incarnational God. Now, what does that mean? It means that God wants to dwell with his people. He wants to walk with us when times are good and bad. A tent is mobile, but a temple is stationary. Now, you see, in most other religions, in most other religions, the gods always command their worshipers to come to them in their temples, to come and bring their sacrifice to them in their temples. But the God of the Bible is a God who cannot be confined by time or space. He actively goes out to be with his people. And if you're somebody here today who's looking for rest, that should bring you comfort. Author Dale Ralph Davis explains the heart of God in these verses. He says, he is a God who travels with his people in all their topsy-turvy, here and there journeys and wanderings. Do his people live in tents? So does he. Are they a pilgrim people on their way to the land of the promise? So he is the pilgrim God sharing the rigors of the journey with them. I love that. God shares the rigors of your journey with you. And some of you are saying, my journey has been rigorous. He doesn't make you come to him, he goes to you. He doesn't sit up in heaven watching your life from far away, uncaring. No, he walks with you. When you're tired, he carries you. When you're wounded, he heals you, if not now, in the future life. When you're suffering, he sits and weeps with you, offering the gift of his presence. So he says to Nathan and David, you don't need to build me a house, I didn't ask for it. I'm an incarnational God, Emmanuel, God with you. Do you believe that God is with you? Do you believe that God is with you? Now, now pause and meditate on that regularly. In about a month, we're going to start singing Christmas songs. Right? John's already getting it ready. He's, he's got, he's got the, the, you know, the playlist lined up. What are some of the Christmas songs we sing? O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. Every year we sing these songs, but do we believe the words Or do we think God is only with us in the good times? Because, friends, the message of Christmas and the heart of God revealed right here in 2 Samuel 7 is this. God is with us. Now, eventually the temple does get built, and we'll come to that shortly. But God continues in verse 8. Look what he says. He says, Now, therefore, you must... Uh, Thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you, David, from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. So so notice, he turns his attention right to David here. And, And if David is thinking like this typical ancient Near Eastern king, God humbles him. God says, essentially, David, I don't want you to do me any favors by building me a temple. I don't want you thinking you can control me by what you do for me. No, I want to remind you that I saved you. I made you king. And he addresses those misplaced motivations we just spoke about, fear, fame, fortune. Look at verse 9. He says, and I have been with you, David, wherever you went, and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. So again, God reminds David who he is and that he's with him. He's removed his enemies. He doesn't need to follow him out of fear. How about fame? Who has elevated David? God. David doesn't need to build a temple to get notoriety for himself. He needs to point people to the God who who saved him. 
And since God has established David as king, any fortune he has also comes from God. And then in verse 11, God makes this amazing promise that turns David's world upside down. Look at this. He says, and I will give you rest, there is again, from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you into a house. Now, this verse right here is one of the most significant in the entire Bible. So you should underline it, you should highlight it, you should, you should study it. To understand its importance, you have to look at that word house. It's the Hebrew word bet, which can have multiple meanings. One can mean a structure, which is how the chapters have primarily been using it, but here it changes. It can also mean a dynasty. Two meanings for the word house. And a dynasty, he says here, that God, not David, built. This verse and the surrounding context is what theologians call the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant. And with this promise, God builds a more durable structure than the tent. He's building a house that will provide rest for his people into eternity. Now again, put yourself in David's shoes. For years up to this point, again, David has been doing nothing but fighting. He's come within an inch of his life so many times. He's been wondering if God is going to allow him to take this throne. And then he hears these words. David is so blown away that he, he pens an emotive response to this promise in Psalm 89. Look at what he writes. He says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever." With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Now that word covenant, It's not used in 2 Samuel 7, but this psalm makes it clear that's what God is doing. A covenant is a promissory oath. It's it's a pledge that God will provide this eternal dynasty from David to rule over his people. Now, in the past, if you read the Bible, God makes covenants with people like Noah and Abraham and, and Moses to establish different elements of the unfolding story of salvation in the scriptures. And the Davidic covenant focuses specifically on the royal line of David, through which will come the true king, Jesus, who will rule forever in justice and power. And all this is done because God built David into a house a dynasty. It was God's action out of love for David. Now, that other phrase, steadfast love, that's the Hebrew word hesed, which is the corresponding concept to the New Testament's idea of grace. And so we see that God is not just an incarnational God. He's a God of grace. He offers us what we don't deserve out of love and mercy. And so David's story and the story of the entire Old Testament is really about God's work in the world. God chooses, provides for, and protects his people. He's the one who's building the story. And so the question for us to consider today is this. Who is building our lives? Is it us and our efforts, or is it God? Let's consider how two different paths affect our rest. First, if you're relying on your plans to build your life, no wonder you're tired. 
right? Some of us are sleep deprived right now because we're working really hard to build our kingdom our way. And if our plans don't work out the way we think they should, it causes a lot of stress in our lives. Now, in contrast, God says, when you build my way, when you follow my plans, you will have rest. And truthfully, some of us right now, um, we know that God is calling us in a certain direction, and we just don't want to go. We don't want to follow that way. Why? Maybe that path that God has laid out for you is not what you want. Maybe it's not as glamorous a life as you think you deserve. But if that's how God is calling you, if that's what he's given to you, there's nothing else that will satisfy. It's only when we surrender and let him build that we can find rest in this house. But that surrender part, man, that's so hard. It's so hard. It's the one we resist the most. And it keeps us from a place of true rest. And that is at the throne. At the throne. We live such exhausted lives because we don't want to fall on our knees before God's throne. Now, remember last week, Pastor Dave told us about that Burger King commercial, which ended with that tagline. He was really proud of this, by the way. You rule. You rule, right? You can get whatever you want at Burger King. You can have it your way. We want to rule, and that's why we're so tired. It's not our job to rule in God's place. We need to remember who the true king is. And do you know what's so amazing about this promise that God makes to David? It is unconditional. It's unconditional. God says, no matter what happens, I will always make sure you have a king to rule. In fact, he specifically highlights three areas that could end the dynasty but will not. Death, time, and sin. Look at verse 12. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So God says, David, even after you're gone, I'll make sure that you have descendants to follow you. Death, death will not end your dynasty. And I think that's so important to remember because kings like David, they're, so, they're often concerned about their legacy, if their legacy is threatened, what do they do? They, they, they start a war. They, they kill challengers to the throne. Or they begin some ill-conceived building program. But God says, my promise to you, David, is, is that it will transcend death. You can rest. Now, who's the offspring? Well, in this verse, it's pretty clear that God's referring to Solomon, who's going to come into focus during 1 Kings 1 to 11. Death will not end the dynasty of David. In fact, in verse 13, God makes a specific promise about Solomon. Look at what he says. He says, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's going to be forever. In other words, time will not stop this destiny. Now, if you look there, there's that word house again, and here it describes a physical building, the temple. At the beginning of this passage, God made it clear that David was not to build the temple. And if you look over in 1 Chronicles 22 and 28, God gives a clear reason for why David could not build the temple. He has blood on his hands. He has waged war, and that couldn't be tied to this temple building. But it didn't mean the temple would never be built. Solomon, David's son and heir, will build the temple during a time of peace. And if you notice that last phrase, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, there's a few things we learn about Solomon, right? (laughs) 
If you read later on, you know that Solomon is just as complicated as his father. He asked for wisdom. He was the wisest person on earth, but, but he loved wealth, he loved women, he loved idols. And at the end of his reign, the kingdom of Israel is divided again. Most of the kings who followed him forgot God. And yet, God says here he's going to establish his kingdom forever. It's going to transcend time. Now, given Solomon's complicated nature, we read this in verse 14 and 15. God says, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. And so I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now, in in other words, he's saying here, David's dynasty will weather the disappointment and destruction of sin. What what does he say in these verses? He says, I'm going to be to him a father and he will be to me a son. I love him. Yes, he's going to sin and there will be consequences, but I won't do the same thing that I did to Saul, David. Now, this statement in particular would have blown David away because he just lived through the downfall of Saul. He, He saw what he got. He saw what the threat of losing the kingdom did to him. But God says, I'm not going to do the same thing to your line, David. You are my chosen king. Now, you might ask, why is it that this line can weather the destructive consequences of sin? Because this is what causes the great tension at the end of the Old Testament, if you read along. Right here in 2 Samuel 7, 8 to 17, God has promised the people of Israel that there will always be a king to rule over them. But if you know your Bible, you know that eventually the nation breaks apart. After Solomon, there's a northern kingdom, there's a southern kingdom. Both are eventually defeated and carried into exile. And at the end of the Old Testament, the people of Israel are in exile. God is silent for 400 years, and they're wondering, they're waiting, right? And they're saying, is the promise right here still true? Where is the king we were promised? Is God going to really do what he said in verse 16? He says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established. In other words, if we're supposed to find rest at the throne, God, where is the king? And it's with this zeitgeist, this national longing, that question in the air that a baby is born over 2,000 years ago. Where? Bethlehem, city of David. The city where David was born and where Samuel anointed him king. It was the place where David grew up. And it's in that place that God himself came down in the flesh and tabernacled again amongst his people as a human being. Jesus Christ, the long-awaited heir of the Davidic dynasty, would ensure that this promise would be fulfilled. That the throne would be established forever forever. Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a cruel death on the cross. He would ensure that death would be defeated. He secured eternal life for his people. Time is not a barrier. He paid the penalty of sin once and for all so that you and I could experience the promise that we're going to have a king who's going to rule in justice and righteousness. 
He will govern this world as it was meant to be governed. And his message to us today is this from Matthew's gospel. What does he say? He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Are you tired today? Is your soul weary? I suspect many of us are. Life, life has done a number on us, right? Right now, you may be looking around at your situation in life and you're saying, I didn't sign up for this. God, I didn't sign up for this. God, God, when I prayed that prayer and I asked for a family, when I prayed that prayer and I asked for for that job, when I prayed that prayer and I, I asked for the ability to make an impact, what I got right now, this is not what I imagined. It's not what I imagined. And and I'm tired, God, of the sleepless nights. I'm tired of the constant conflict. I'm tired of the stress of the unknown. God, I I am tired. Is your promise of rest still true? And if that's you, David understood your pain because he was tired of running and fighting. 2 Samuel 7, he got rest, but God promised so much more. And for us, the truth is this. God promises us rest too. He promises rest through the heir of David's throne who one day will come back to make all things right in the world. And until that time, Jesus wants us to come to him. He knows what it's like to be like us. He knows what it's like to walk in our shoes. He offers us grace and mercy at the throne. What does the writer of Hebrews say? Hebrews 4, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. How does he finish? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the promise. We have a king who says, come to my throne and I'll give you everything you need. Don't resist me. I love you. Don't find your rest in a tent. It's gonna fall apart. Don't find your rest in a house you built It's going to leave you exhausted. Find your rest at the throne of the heir of David's dynasty. Mercy and grace in our time of need. Rest for your soul. And so after God spoke to David through Nathan, David goes before God's throne, the end of 2 Samuel 7. He recognizes who the true king was, and he sits in God's presence praising him. And that's where I'd like to finish today. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on stage for one more song, um, one beautiful song that we're going we're gonna to sing together. And, and I want to invite us right now for a moment to gaze upon the beauty of the king as David did. Because truthfully, the reason we're not resting many times is because we find the things of this world, the promises the world has to offer as more beautiful than Jesus. But when you look to the king who sits on the true throne, everything's going to be right. No matter what happens, it's going to be okay because one day he's going to come back to rule forever. That's our hope. So as we finish, I want to read three verses from David's prayer response to God. And the third verse, we're going to to pray together. 
So before you put the next slide up, let me just read this. After hearing this promise, David says this. He says to God, and what more can David say? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. You've shown me, God. And so now I want to invite you to stand as we close. And we're going to pray verse 22, 722 together. And as we do, I want you to think about the beauty of God. Think about what David was experiencing here. Let's pray this together. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all we have heard with our ears. Let's pray that one more time. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God according. Amen. Amen. May that be your prayer this week as you find your rest at the throne of our great God and Savior, our Lord Jesus. Amen.